Uh, good afternoon for you, everyone. It's uh, lunchtime here for me uh, in Jefferson City. It's a beautiful day, so I'm having lunch outside in a nice park area that's nearby where I'm going to be going next, which is Vital Records, uh, to take care of some uh, 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 death certificates for some of our member funeral homes. Uh, so while I've uh, just finished my lunch, I'm going to do the video today. You probably won't see it for a little while till later this afternoon because I'm going to have to get back to the office and we have to get it to Bobby so she can edit it and everything. So um, what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of a follow-up to what we talked about last week having to do with who's in charge of what. promise you this one won't go as long as the last one. Interestingly enough, we've had like three questions since that last video about disinternment. Disinternment. What we talked about last week was who was in charge of deciding what the final disposition of a person was, what their what the final disposition is. And we went over the uh, chapter, uh, the right of sepulcher, uh, the next of kin statutes in Missouri law that went all the way down the list. Now, as you might remember, that list that we put up there, I put up there on the screen, those are the people in order of priority who gets to decide what the final disposition is. Once final disposition has happened, whether it's burial, cremation, interment, or whatever, that list no longer applies because that list applies to who's in charge of the final disposition. Once final disposition happens, you have to look at other statutes or other regulations to determine who is in charge of what. And we covered last week that with cremation, uh, there's a separate statute. You have to look at that to decide who's in charge of the cremated remains after cremation happens. You follow the contract. If the contract is silent, then you do what the person who contracted for the cremation says. Today, we're going to talk about disinterment. We've covered this very briefly uh, once or twice before, but this is a full-blown presentation on disinterment because, by golly, we've had a lot of questions on that this week. I don't know what's going on. And one of the feedback, one of the great feedbacks that we got from my, the last video that we did was that you really liked seeing the statutes instead of my face. <laughs> so uh, let's get straight to it. Let's see if we can get this to work. Uh, let me give you a full screen here. You don't need to see me. All right. Going to see how this works here. We've got a new system here. Okay. Slide one. Okay. We're going to talk about disinterment. Digging in to the details. All right. The statute that determines who is in charge of disinterment uh, is Chapter 214-208. Now, we, the association, helped revise this several years ago. Prior to the revision of Chapter 214-208, a couple of problems would pop up. First off is, well, is the same person that was in charge of the burial yesterday in charge of the disinterment and moving the body tomorrow? And the answer under the old law was no. There were two different lists that didn't match up quite. So you could have a widow, for example, bury her husband today at the cemetery in her hometown, and then tomorrow the parents of the deceased, under the old law, could dig up that deceased person and move him somewhere else. That was actually a possibility under the old law. The other possibility that caused problems under the old law is, well, is there a disconnect between who controls the body and who controls the burial plot, the land on the body? 
whether or not it was a true burial plot deed or whether they just had a license to use it or whether the cemetery cemetery still owned the land completely. Uh, there was a question is, is there a disconnect between uh, the person who might control the body and the person who might control the plot of land? And they've had this problem pop up in other states. As a matter of fact, Kansas, several years ago, uh, asked us to send them the information that we had on our statute uh, because they were running into some similar problems as well, where somebody perhaps controlled the body technically, but the person who owned, quote unquote, owned the burial plot said, well, you can't, I won't let you dig on my land because I own that burial plot. Well, our association was part of the effort. Uh, we took the lead actually on this to help clear this up as best we could. Of course, we worked with the cemetery association. Uh, the coroners were involved. There were a lot of people that were involved in all of this. And so we're going to deal with the current statute right now. First off, we don't have that lot ownership problem. It's not a problem in Missouri anymore because you see right there, one of the very first thing it says is every person or association which owns any cemetery in which dead human remains are buried or otherwise interred is authorized to disinter if you follow the rest of the statute. So it doesn't matter if one person purchased the plot and another person controls the body, if the person who controls the body, the disinterment follows the steps in the statute, then the cemetery can go ahead and allow that disinterment, and we don't have that problem anymore. But you do have to follow the statute. So who is in charge of disinterring a body and moving it somewhere else? Well, number one on the list, interestingly enough, is the cemetery itself, as you can see right there. Every person or association which owns any cemetery in which dead human remains are buried is authorized at the cemetery owner's expense to disinter an individual remains and reinter or rebury the remains at another location within the cemetery in order to correct an error made in the original burial or interment of the remains. And this has happened uh, several times uh, where I've gotten a call where it was determined that a mistake had been made and a person was buried in the wrong location. In that instance, the cemetery at their own expense can put the body where it should have been in the first place, all on their own, of course, on their own expense. Now, what most of you, of course, usually wind up, because we hope that mistake doesn't happen, uh, what you usually wind up with is uh, a family member later on wants to move dad or mom or grandpa or grandma from the cemetery that they're buried in right now and move them somewhere else. So now then we have to go down the statute to see who is in charge of that. Family decisions. The family gets to decide. Well, the first person on that list who gets to decide whether to move a body from one location to the other is, and you must get this in writing, by the way, the next of kin of the deceased at the time the deceased passed away, as set out in section 194.119, which is what we covered last time. So whoever was the next of kin under 194.119 at the time of that person's death, they are number one on the list as to deciding whether or not the human remains, whether they were buried or interred, were going to be moved from cemetery number one to cemetery number two. So that's the first person on the list. And that eliminated the problem that we did have a number of years ago, where literally a spouse would bury their, their deceased partner 
uh, on Monday, and the parents of the deceased dig them up on Tuesday to move them somewhere else. Obviously, that's a situation where the uh, in-laws were not getting along with the surviving spouse. And right after the burial, they wanted to move it. That was possible under certain circumstances under the old law. Now, the next of kin at the time of death is number one on the list. Well, that's fine if the next of kin under chapter 194-119 is still alive. But what happens if it's been a while and that person has died? Now, this is a very common situation that funeral homes that have called me up have talked about. You know, dad died uh, 20 years ago. Uh, Mom died this last week. And mom's going to be buried where she lives now, and they want to go and uh, disinter dad and and bring him so that they can he can be laid to rest next to mom. Well, then we go to the next on the list, and that is that the next of ten, kin at the time of death set out in section one ninety four one ninety nine is no longer living. Then we have a vote. This is the level one voting. It's the majority of the following adult members of the deceased person's family who are then known and living, surviving spouse, children, and parents. This is a little bit of a holdover of the old law uh, where you have some voting that's going on. So if you have a deceased person and and the spouse is no longer around and somebody wants to disinter, you have to take a look at a vote. And you, the people who are allowed to vote in this first level of voting are surviving spouse, children, and parents. Remember, the surviving spouse very often is going to be that next of kin under 119, but not always because they may have done a uh, power of attorney or Department of Defense Form 93 uh, as to uh, they put somebody else in charge. So, Uh, If those people aren't around, then it's that vote. So you can still have some disputes here because you could have two parents of the deceased outvote one child. All right. Or you could have three children outvote two parents. So there still is a possibility of disputes, but at least we know exactly who is in charge. That's level number one is who gets to decide whether or not to disinter and move a body. Well, what if it's been quite a while since the person has died and we're down to a next level of relatives further on down the list? Then we have vote level number two. If none of the above family members survive the deceased, then the majority of the grandchildren, brothers and sisters of the whole or half blood may authorize the disinterment, relocation or delivery of the remains of the deceased. So then you go down to the next level, which includes brothers and sisters grandchildren um, of the deceased, either whole brothers and sisters or half brothers and sisters, they count the same in this statute. So again, once again, you could have a dispute, uh, but at least we know exactly who's in charge. So if if there's any uh, concern about that, make sure you get it in writing and make sure that you have a majority. The cost of such disinterment, as you'll see, money, money, shall be paid by the deceased person's family. Now, obviously, although it doesn't spell this out in the statute, that would be the deceased person's family that want the disinterment. So if you've got three family members that want a disinterment and want to move the body and two that don't, uh, I am confident, uh, although this has never gone to court, 
I am confident that a court would most likely say, you know, never say absolute, <laughs> but if it was a dispute and it went to court, I'm, I'm fairly confident that a judge would say that it was the three people who wanted the disinterment that have to pay for it, not the two people who didn't want it. That makes pretty good sense. So that is what we have there. Now, what if you get further on down the list? What if you don't have grandchildren, brothers, or sisters? What if you are down, the person died 50, 60, 100 years ago, and you want to move the body, somebody wants to move the body from one place to another? Well, now we have to go to the next section of the statute. Yes, we're going to the courthouse. Uh, for those of you that uh, know that old song, going to the courthouse, except uh, you're not getting married there, you are moving a body. And you'll see right there, when you have to go to the courthouse, the court may issue an order in the court's discretion and upon such notice and hearing as the court shall deem appropriate for good cause shown, including without limitations, the best interest of pulp, health or safety, the best interest of the deceased person's family, are the reasonable requirements of the cemetery to facilitate the operation of the cemetery. So again, we're talking perhaps somebody that passed away 100 years ago. There might be several reasons why somebody would want to move a body. Perhaps that old cemetery has deteriorated. It is no longer being kept up. Uh, it might be encroached by a river or floodwaters, whatever the case may be. So the public health or safety can, uh, somebody can go to court and say it's in the best interest of the public if these bodies are moved. The family can say it's in the best interest of the family, or the cemetery as well could go to court and say, look, we are redoing the cemetery. We're enlarging it. We've bought a bunch of new land. But to do this, we have to move some uh, old graves around to get this done. It's Again, it's not a slam dunk that the judge would say that that's okay to do. But anyone could petition the court to say that it's in the best interest of the public. A family member obviously might say it's in the best interest of the family. And the cemetery could say it is a reasonable requirement for the operation of the cemetery. So you would have to go to court if you don't have level one, if you don't have the if you don't have the surviving next of kin, if you don't have level one, if you don't have level two, then you are going to court. And once again, money, who's in, who has to pay? The cost of such disinterment, relocation, and delivery and the related court proceedings shall be paid by the person so ordered by the court. So if you have to get this far and the court has to order a disinterment, the court is supposed to set out in the order who is paying for all this. Quite obviously, if it's the cemetery that has petitioned the court to move a body, uh, it's going to be the cemetery that you would assume the judge will assign uh, the cost. If it's the family, the petitioner that uh, from the family that does it is likely to be the one that the court orders to pay the bill. So you've got the order or you've got the family or you've got the next of kin and you've got them willing to pay for the cost of disinterment, moving the body from one location to another. What do you do next? Oh, huh. one last thing here. Uh, if you follow these rules now, again, if you follow these rules, then it's okay to disinter the body and you don't have to worry about who owns the plot of land and if you've got the majority or you've got the next of kin, you don't have to worry about other people complaining about it. But here's a very important thing that we added to the statute. And this is why, again, 
you make sure you always have attorneys and lobbyists on your side because we added number four to the statute when it was redone, as you can see right there. The cemetery owner, cemetery operator, funeral director, funeral establishment, or any other person or entity involved in the process shall not be liable to the deceased person's family or to any third party for a disinterment, relocation, or delivery of a deceased human remains made pursuant to this section. So if you, if the people follow these rules on the disinterment, if you have the written notice from the next of kin at the time the person died, or if you have the vote of the majority of the people, either in class one or class two, or if you have a court order, don't worry about getting uh, in legal trouble, legal liability, because we have protection in there. And I'm proud to say that it was your association, the Missouri Funeral Directors and the Bombers Association, that made sure that that was in the law. Okay, so you've disinterred the body. You're going to move it to somewhere else. Uh, somebody's got to give notice. You can't just do it without telling anybody. If the disinterment is going to be for transportation or location outside the original cemetery, we have to go to yet another statute, 194-105. And that says that any person, owner, or operator of any cemetery which removes any body which has been properly buried for transportation, must file notice with the coroner. Of course, this is usually probably going to fall on the funeral director, to be honest with you. All right. To be it is. It's technically the cemetery's job to notify the coroner, but we do know that the coroner needs to be notified. And so you better make sure that that happens. You also need to notify uh, the uh, closest living known relative that's known to the cemetery, opera, the cemetery operator, the body being moved. That's kind of can be a weird situation because very often it is the closest known relative of the deceased. That is the one that is paying to have the body disinterred and removed. But despite the fact that it might be the closest known relative, okay, you still must notify by certified mail the closest living relative known to the cemetery operator, the body being moved. Once again, this is technically the cemetery's responsibility but we know that many times this is going to fall on the shoulders of the funeral director to make sure that this actually does happen because that notice is required when you're doing a disinterment and the cemetery might not be the one that's getting paid for the disinterment. The funeral director is in many instances. So you want to make sure that that is going to happen. Uh, and you do have to do it by certified mail. So make sure you do that and you keep records that you've done that. One interesting thing is you'll see it doesn't say which county coroner or which medical examiner you're supposed to notify. If you're taking the body from one part of the state to another part of the state, are, does that mean you notify the coroner where the body was disinterred? Or do you notify the coroner where the body is going to be reinterred? Well, the statute doesn't say. So here's my advice. Notify both of them. Tell both coroners or both medical examiners, hey, we are removing the body from cemetery number one and taking it and burying it in cemetery number two. If you do that, then you know you're covered. No way anybody can say you violated the law because every coroner that was involved is it has been properly notified. One interesting quirk in the law, however, that does pop up in this situation is transporting a body that has been disinterred. And here where we run to a case where we've got some really old laws and some laws that were written that really 
probably weren't contemplating the the situations you were faced in, but they're still on the books. So with my attorney hat on, I'm going to point them out to you. A disinterred human body, whether what no matter what they died of, is treated as infectious and dangerous to the public health and shall not be offered to or accepted by any common carrier for transportation unless it is encased in an airtight metal or metal-lined burial case, coffin, casket, or box that is closed and hermetically sealed. That law, actually, I'll go flip ahead, goes all the way back. You'll see this slide here is from 1909. That's where that, that's, uh, it actually was in the law before that, but 1909 is the uh, most recent uh, statute I was able to get a good screenshot of. But it's practically the exact same statute from 1909 that's on the books today. The key to that, however, is it does say a common carrier. Now, a common carrier is a term of art in the transportation business, and that's going to refer to being on an airplane, being on a bus line. These laws were actually written for the railroads, these old laws. So a railroad, common carrier would not be your private vehicle. So the law does not technically mandate that you'd put it in a sealed metal container if you are transporting it on your vehicle or a vehicle that you have hired out for the day where you're the one that controls that vehicle. So uh, what's the difference between a common carrier and a non-common carrier? Well, a common carrier is a transportation company that holds itself out to the public in general for transportation where the goods or in fact, people, if you're talking about transporting passengers on that vehicle might be not related to each other in any way, shape or form. If you see an 18 wheeler going from St. Louis to Kansas City, the back of that 18 wheeler might have 100 different boxes in it. And those 100 different boxes might be owned by 100 different people. And they are going to 100 different locations eventually. But on that trip between St. Louis and Kansas City, while they're all on the back of that truck, they're being held in common. See, they're being transported in common. That's different from a private transportation where you own the vehicle. That's different from a contract transportation where you have rented out that vehicle and nothing can be in that vehicle except what you say can be in that vehicle. That's not common carriage if you've rented out that whole vehicle for the day. You say, I'm the only one that can decide what's in the back of that vehicle. So it, the airtight metal or metal line case does not technically apply to your vehicle, but what? look at that first sentence. It's treated as infectious and dangerous to the public health. All right. So there are a whole bunch of rules dealing with transporting anything that is technically infectious or dangerous to the public health that were written well after 1909, and we're not taking this into account. So we do have that problem. If you run into this situation and you have concerns about that, please call me up, of course, only if you're members of the association. And uh, we will look up those statutes and fill out whatever forms need to be done if they need to be filled out. They don't always need to be, but there's always a chance of that, uh, particularly when you're shipping a body across state lines, depending on what state you're going to or if it's going overseas or to another country. The other thing, of course, we have that technically can ap apply to this problem is the Missouri's Code of State Regulations that said a Missouri licensed funeral establishment shall not hold the unembalmed body for longer than 24 hours unless it's been encased in an airtight metal or metal line burial case casket or box that is closed and hermetically sealed. So once again, if you're going to be in possession of that body for a certain period of time, arguably the Code of State Regulations says it must, if it has not been embalmed, 
it must be in an, an airtight metal or metal lined box. How do you know whether the body was embalmed or not? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. And again, that just tells you what oldie but a goodie. That's a problem we face in Missouri law. We have statutes on the books that went into effect last August 28th. And we have statutes on the books that are still in the books that were there in the mid-1800s, written right around the Civil War, and were designed for handling bodies the way they handled bodies back in the mid-1800s. And when, if they were being shipped, the only way they were really shipped is on, a, on railroads going to and from uh, the Civil War battlefields, literally, is why a lot of these laws had to be written, because that was, as those of you who have been to mortuary school or have studied this or have watched the wonderful uh, PBS documentary, Death in the Civil War, know that uh, many of our laws and customs, rituals, and procedures dealing with funerals and the deceased stemmed from uh, the situation in the Civil War, where literally for the first time you had very large numbers of people dying away from home where the families wanted to bring them back uh, and wanted them preserved, embalmed, and shipped properly. Well, that is what we have for today. That is disinterment. That was the Hopefully you're hearing me. I just got to notice that something with the audio was going on. Uh, so if this didn't work, we might have to reshoot it again. <laughs> I hope not because my lunch hour is over and I got to get uh, going and go get going to vital records here uh, across the way and take care of some other business. So if you have any questions about this, again, please give us a call. And until next time, stay safe.